let us know that you're here. Merry Christmas. It's tomorrow. If you haven't gone shopping, you still have 12 hours, maybe. Um, you could be that person. Husbands, you still have time. I warned you. So please be uh, praying for our teachers as they head off. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to 1 Peter. We'll be in 1 Peter 1, 3 to 9. And as you turn there, isn't it great to... Uh, Revelation 7 has a different context. It hits differently when you actually start hearing God's word read in different languages. And I praise God for what he has done and is doing um, amongst his people here at Nolwood. It is amazing to just bask and in, in wonder in that. So during Christmas, we often hear or sing songs about joy. It's, it's, it's everywhere, right? We even sung a song today. The opening song of O Come All Ye Faithful says, O Come All, you, all Ye Faithful, Joyful and Triumphant, it says. But here's the question, and here's the problem. What if I'm not feeling very joyful right now? What if I'm not feeling very triumphant right now? And we sing these songs. It's everywhere. It's even on those fancy wreaths you get in your house so that says like joy and some sort of thing you got from Hobby Lobby or, or something like that. You know, Jesus promised his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 11, he says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, he says, and that your joy may be full. Those are pretty big words. In the Christian life, we are actually commanded to be joyful. In fact, I will go as far as saying that in the Christian life, joy is not optional. From the Old Testament, as God commands Israel to be joyful and be glad, through to the New Testament, as Jesus himself commands it, joy is in the list of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy is the second one, right? Meaning that the Christian, when they have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is to exhibit joy in their life. You know, there's too many passages within the Bible to list them all here at this time, but here's a few. Luke 6, 23 says, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Which, let's be honest, as Baptists, we really would struggle with that part there. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, he says. Or how about in Romans 12, 12, where our ladies actually did a whole like uh, uh, conference around. Rejoice in hope. Or Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. It's not just the songs of the season that keep reminding us of how joyful we are to be. It's not those people who kind of put on the fake smiles. On a side note, you ever meet those people that are just always happy? Like, they, they, they drive me insane. <laughs> and I think happiness and joy are different in my mind. We can talk about that later. But even Philippians 4, 4 says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. And then he comes about, and then he has the audacity to say this, Again, I will say, rejoice. And Paul is writing those words while he's in prison. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. 
So Christmas reminds us about how we are to be joyful. But how can I be joyful when it seems as though there is nothing to be joyful about? Christmas reminds many of us of the things that we might have even lost over the years. So how can I be joyful in this time? Maybe you're even asking yourself right now, how can I be joyful like this? If there's a command, though, there's always a promise. And how can I be joyful during this time? So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be opening them up to 1 Peter. I'm going to actually start in verse 1 because context is important. So verse, verse 1 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bethania, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sancti sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for, sprinkle, uh, for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor and the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Father, we just thank you for a chance we have to just take some time to continue in our worship of you. Uh, Lord, you are indeed worthy of it all. And I think Christmas, I pray that hopefully Christmas doesn't remind us of all the stressful things that happened during this season, but remind us of all the great things that you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. So God, as we continue to praise you, as we continue to worship you through the listening and even as I worship you through the preaching of your word, Lord, I want to preach so that you are glorified. And I want to speak of you and I want to praise your name. And Lord, there's no way I can do this on my own. So by your spirit, will you help me to preach this sermon with what is needed? Lord, I pray from the bottom of my heart that you would use this sermon to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. Amen. So verses 3 to 5, we see the reason for joy. And I will be focusing on 3 to 9. And verses 3 to 9, we read from the beginning because as I was saying, context is important. And Peter is writing from what we think is Rome to the Gentile Christians who are in spiritual exile. As they wait for their heavenly inheritance. They are facing many trials for their faith. So Peter wants to take the time to encourage them in their faith. 
and remind them of the hope and the reason that they have for joy. So again, even as Peter is writing this, he's not writing to people who are kind of like, I don't know, living in Canada, sitting on comfy chairs with a heated room. Okay? He's writing to people who are legitimately suffering as he says these words. In verse 3, he says, Whatever is to be said, whatever comes out of whatever he's going to say, the response of what he says is worship. With a beautiful picture of at least two parts of the triune God, we are called to praise God. But why? According to his great mercy. Now just sit on that one for a sec. According to his great mercy. You know, I think oftentimes we use that word, oh, great, that's great to hear. Was it really great to hear? I don't know. Not really. It wasn't fantastic. I think we water it down a little bit. According to God's great mercy is the outflow of the worship that comes. But what is mercy? It's not getting what you deserve to get. What great mercy. Peter is coming out from this angle that we often don't talk about. We talk a lot about the grace of God which is all about getting things that we don't deserve, like Christmas. Christmas reminds us of these. We got gifts. We didn't work for those gifts. If we work for those gifts, they're not gifts. Okay, that defeats the purpose. So if your parents' kids are forcing you to work for your gifts, tell me about it. We can have a conversation, okay? (laughs) But here we're talking about God's mercy, God didn't just give you something that you didn't deserve to get in a gift of Jesus Christ being born as a baby, but he didn't give you the very thing that you deserve to get. What great mercy. We don't talk about this very often, but how we have been saved from what we deserve to get. There's a, music, a musician, he was at one point a Christian, I used to listen to his music, a Christian one named Michael Gongor, a musician who was uh, just going through a major deconstruction recently over the last few years. Uh, for those of you who don't know what deconstructionism is, it's this idea of essentially uh, denying the faith that you once believed, right? And it's a fancy word for something that's always been around. First uh, John talks about that. But here we have, he posted on social media recently, new lyrics to the classic John Newton song, Amazing Grace. And he took out that one line, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The problem is that this is exactly who we are. If I don't understand the wretch that I am, not meaning that I'm subhuman, but meaning that I did not get the very thing that I deserve before a holy God, then I completely miss the point of Christmas. We deserve a punishment, and that punishment is hell, where because, where, where because of our sin, and this is where God actively pours out his wrath on those who have rejected him, but this is what Christmas reminds us of, that about the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus steps down from his throne, from his heavenly kingdom, and is born of a baby. He grew up and dies on a Roman cross for the sins of his people. 
that is grace. And then he absorbs the very wrath that we deserve because of our sin. That is mercy. You know, grace and mercy are the two sides of a coin of the gospel. You can't really even talk about the gospel unless you're talking about grace and mercy. And that's why Peter opens up with praise. Because he's utterly blown away by what Christ has done. This morning, as I was even doing my own devotions, I was, in, I was in John 21, and in John 21, Jesus reinstates Peter. Peter deserves to be cut off from God at that moment. As he's writing these words, he's probably reflecting upon all of the mercy that God has so lavishly poured out on him. I'm writing this letter at this moment as an act of God's mercy. Are you as blown away by that as he is. Do you know the mercy of God? Can you say with confidence, with an explanation point, the great mercy of God? And what does that do in your life here and now? As you dwell on that mercy, what does it elicit within you? Because for Peter, it elicits praise. Because this is some great mercy. If you are in Christ, it's amazing. And what Peter is about to talk about, which is really salvation, is completely based upon God's loving initiative. So that, explain, that, that explanation point that we see there, that shows excitement, just in case you don't know what that means. All Peter can do is praise God because of his great mercy. How is this mercy shown? He has caused us to be born again, he says. Who is the one who does the new life? It is an act of God. It is the mercy of God who is the source of this new life. And this new life is a regeneration which God the Father planned, which God the Son accomplishes and the Holy Spirit fulfills in us. To what? A living hope. What is living hope, you may ask? What makes it better than hope? The living hope that is given is living because it comes from Jesus who is living. He is the resurrected Savior. Our living hope is Jesus Christ. And we need to remember the context of what Peter is writing here, right? So he is not writing to Christians living, as I said, in the 21st century Canada who have it pretty good, who haven't really suffered that much for the name of Jesus He's writing to people who are spiritual exiles. He's writing to Christians suffering persecution throughout Asia Minor, seeking to encourage them during this time. And he starts with the gospel. Peter is talk, taking their eyes off of their current circumstances, and he's pointing them back to Jesus. The Christian hope is anchored to the one who is victorious over life or over death, who was resurrected, who is alive. So Peter, just like Paul in Romans 8, 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And this is a hope that is waiting with confidence of the blessings to come. It is rooted in the very character of God. 
It is something that is certain, but not completely seen. It's like if you were to drive west, and you were going to go, obviously, through Canada, because that's the best way to go west, not through the States. As you go out west, and you drive there, and you get to the, the prairies, which I'll be honest, are very flat, not even trees. And you're driving, and you get closer and closer to Alberta. You begin to see something starting to peek up from the ground, from the horizon. You begin to see the Rockies, and as you get closer and closer, they begin to get higher and higher and higher. This is a hope that we have. We don't see it completely, but as we get closer and closer, it begins to be more and more evident towards us. This is the living hope showing that this is a permanent, this is not a a dying hope. The Christian always has hope. We are never to be hopeless. Because to be hopeless means that God's character is changing. But God's character is unchanging, which means we should always have hope. And that's why we re- again we rejoice again and again. A few years ago, at the beginning of the shutdown, I got a call from my old banker from Burlington. I remember I was actually in this room praying and walking around. And from Burlington, she calls me and she asks me to conduct the funeral for her husband. And she describes it as though he had lost all hope. He wasn't even that old. I think he was about 70 years old. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you have a living hope. We have a hope that is permanent. It is anchored to Christ himself. And that certain hope is what pushes us to live for Christ in uncertain times. Because where does that hope come from? through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, as Peter continues on. This new life that has been planned by God the Father happens through the resurrection of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says that death was the last enemy to be destroyed. Jesus is our victorious king who conquered death, and because he is alive, he shares his resurrection with us now with the future promise of full participation when he will come back. That last song we sung was a great song of hopefulness as it points to the fact that Jesus is coming back. Christmas is a reminder of this waiting. It reminds us of the promise fulfilled in Jesus, but reminds us of that whatever is to come, our joy is being fulfilled. And Peter is getting those reading this letter to see the goodness of God. You know the old saying, God is good. Amen. The response is always, God is good all the time. And I think the question for us is this, do we believe that? Do you believe that? As Peter begins to break down the great mercy of God, do you believe that he is good all the time? See, death doesn't have the last word. So we look to a time with a living hope for a matchless inheritance that Peter begins to talk about in verse 4. He says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. 
What is given to those who are in Christ is something that has never been touched by sin. It's not been stained by coffee stains. It hasn't seen the sun bleachness. It has never seen evil. It's death and sin and age proof. You know, not too long ago, a couple years ago, my grandfather passed away and he left an inheritance for his grandchildren, just a little something. Let me tell you, it doesn't last long. Whatever inheritance we get in this world always fades. It always goes away. But not the inheritance we receive in Jesus Christ. What great mercy. The inheritance that we receive through Christ's work is imperishable. It is unfading. It is kept in heaven for us. And this is the hope that hasn't been touched by the trials of this life. It is all these things because it is anchored to Jesus Christ. This is the object of our living hope. And this is the assurance of our enduring hope. And he continues on verse 5. It is an inheritance that is by God's power are being guarded. God himself is standing guard over our inheritance. Now, you got to think about this. In the beginning, God created the heavens. That's the God who is keeping guard over our inheritance. He's not like a centurion who falls asleep at watch. He's not like a, a shepherd who falls asleep at the gate. He's omniscient, omnipotent. He's all-knowing. He's everywhere. He's all-powerful. Creation proves that to us. The resurrection proves that to us. And he's the one who is standing at guard. So if God himself is standing at guard, do you think that this is an inheritance that could be lost or stolen or faded or anything like that? The answer is no. The answer is no. God himself is watching over the inheritance that has been placed aside for us. It is there. We just are waiting. So whatever the trials that we are going through, we know for sure there is a living hope. It is, it is, it is going to happen. It's not like I hope I'm going to get turkey tomorrow. I don't know. Actually, I do know, but you know. I know for sure as a Christian, as one who has repented of my sin and believed that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for me, as one who is resting in that, I know for sure the inheritance that waits for me. What great mercy. Because without Christ, the thing that is waiting for me is not an inheritance, but hell itself. So let me ask you, do you have this hope? And this is an inheritance that is given through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The faith that even enables you to believe in this mercy is not even an act of your own. Like, that's like a, a triple-layer security system of some kind. I'm not a computer engineer, so I have no idea. What great mercy. 
It doesn't mean we aren't responsible for working out our faith or exercising that faith, but that faith is still an exercise, a gift. Right? Christmas is coming, which means New Year's is almost here. How many of you people are going to make some sort of fatalistic resolution to try and lose weight? Right? Some of you probably even got a gift of weights or something uh, that are under the tree for you right now. All right? So someone gave you a gift. It's on you to actually use said gift. And then he continues on. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And at that last time, that final deliverance from sin, and we talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago, when the consummation of all that has been said comes, those who believe in Jesus Christ will enjoy him forever. Jesus is the treasure of, of heaven, by the way. Not that I got out of hell, but that I get to be with Jesus forever. I can't wait. And it won't be touched by any of the th trials of this world. No longer will it be a, just a touch of honey on our tongue. It'll be like our full face in honey. It'll be mind-blowing. Do, do you have this type of living hope? Can you say with certainty, because Peter here is writing with certainty. There's no part of this passage that he's doubting. Every act, every, every sentence is there to build a case of the certainty of the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Can you say with certainty that you have a living hope? If you have, all oh Christians, you have a source of joy that is inexpressible. You were dead, now you're alive. You were an enemy of God, but now you've been adopted into his family. Now you have new life. You were once hopeless, and now you have a living hope. What great mercy. Joy is a gift of God that is anchored to Christ's resurrection. The Bible is constantly reminding us of how we are to be joyful. And then, and then if we're honest, I've done this myself. You're looking through the scripture and you're like, God, I'm not being very joyful right now. I'm kind of losing this battle. Philippians gets right into her face on the subject of joy. But why does it? Because it's attached to the goodness of God. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. The command to joy is rooted in the very character of God. And that is the reason for our joy. Brothers and sisters, we are God's creation and we can enjoy in our hearts because we, we can have joy in our heart because we are reminded of the goodness God has been, has given towards us. Joy is a gift. That is anchored to Christ. But just like any other gift, we do need to exercise it. Because in verses 6 to 9, we see the outcome of that joy. See, the outcome of what has happened is to rejoice. He says, in this you rejoice, he says. What could possibly be the outcome of reflecting more and more on the character of God? Honestly. 
Like if you sit there and you dwell upon it and you journal about it and you look at God's word and you're making notes about who God is and what, what he is showing about who he is, what is our response? It should be rejoicing. Look what he has done for you. This is a rejoicing that happens in the midst of our suffering. As he says, you have been grieved by various trials, Peter says. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit that is in you. He is regenerating you and giving you that new life. He is sealing you. And because of that, you have a different values. You have different allegiances. You have different privileges than what you had before Christ called you to himself. And with that, it makes you different than you once were. And if you're different than when you were once, then you start standing out like a sore thumb. And there may be trials that come with that. We don't hide suffering in Christianity. You don't like sweep it under the rug. Come on, buck up, let's do this. In the Christian world, we acknowledge it. Our Lord and Savior suffered for us. But we see it through the lens of the gospel. We see our suffering with the perspective of God's great mercy. Whatever happens in this life is now for a little while. The hardships of this life are temporary. The inheritance is internal. It is guarded by God himself. It is a living hope. It is sure. And whatever trials you are going through, my friends, my brothers, my sisters, you have in this life, it is nothing in comparison to the eternal inheritance. There's a joy that comes from there. It's not erasing of the trials, but it's looking at these trials through the lens of the gospel. But even trials have purposes because he continues on. If necessary, if something is necessary, that means it has purpose, right? God sometimes allows for and even sends hardships. And when they are needed, and he does them in the right way for the purpose of strengthening our faith. That is what Romans 5, 3 to 4 says. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Or we could quote James 1, 2 to 4. What is the outcome of faith that is strengthened, though? What happens when our faith gets stronger? Is it not a greater joy? Because we are reminded again of the great mercies of God. In verse 7, even the trials we are faced with have a purpose in proving to ourselves the faith that we have, as Peter says, so that the testing, tested genuineness of your faith See, the trials that we go through, the trials that somebody goes through, if you're one who claims to be Christian, has one of two outcomes. Just two. Okay? Either it proves that you have a saving faith or it disproves that you have a saving faith. And as a pastor, that is the hardest thing that I've ever witnessed in my life when people who seem to have a joy that is inexpressible, but then something hard comes into their life, and then they get angry. 
at the God who has shown great mercy. You don't know what to do with these things. We ask how, they start asking, how could God do this to me? Or they become, a, um, they become attracted by the temporary comforts of this world. I think Pastor Chris is preaching on that today. But God uses trials to strengthen our faith because if faith is more precious than anything, right? How is faith described in, in 1 Peter? More precious than gold. If, if our faith is more precious than that, isn't that the thing that we want to put our investment in? And God does that. And doesn't that produce more hope? Job 23.10 says, now remember who Job is, right? Job is a man who suffered. I'm going to go on a limb, and it's, not a, it's a really, really thick limb here, that he's probably suffered more than anyone that we can think of. Just going on a limb. But he says this in chapter 23, verse 10. But he knows the way that I take. And when he tried me, I shall come out as gold. When we suffer for Jesus' sake, it proves that you have a genuine faith. And that means that you have a certainty. Now, if I'm reminded of the faith that I have in Christ, what am I reminded of? Am I not reminded of the inheritance that is guarded by God himself? I think of the apostles and acts who get beaten and leave rejoicing. Like, how frustrating is that to the Jewish leaders of the time? But why were they rejoicing? It says it right there in Acts. Because they were counted as Christ's, worthy to suffer for Christ's. Because when they were suffering because of proclaiming the name of Jesus, it just proved one thing for them. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to be with Christ forever. What is the outcome of these trials? To be found to result in the praise and glory and honor. Faith isn't some sort of one-time act when you pray a prayer and you're good to go. Genuine faith. True faith persists until the day when our salvation is ready to be revealed in that last time. Something very important here is to understand because it is directly tied to joy. You can't separate continued faith and the final salvation. You can't separate those two that Peter is talking about. Faith is the condition to receiving the inheritance. You can't compartmentalize belief in God's protection. If God is protecting, there is faith. If there is faith, there is protection. Now, God's protection doesn't keep us from the trials. It doesn't keep us from suffering that this world often gives, but it does keep us from falling away. And as we persevere through trials, we are reminded of that living hope. In verses 8 to 9, the result the outcome of that, of what God has done for you in Christ is eternal salvation. So though we wait for its completion, we will wait with joy. Right? Christmas is here. Like in our family, the presents are already under the tree. I'm pretty sure some of them have been looking at whose name is on what box. 
they're not being honest about it, but that's okay. We're waiting with anticipation. In my stocking, I see the thing popping out of the stocking, and I'm waiting with anticipation. <laughs> I know what's to come, and I'm looking forward to it. I can wait. As Christians, we can rejoice because of how God has transferred us from a kingdom of darkness to his kingdom of light. But we also rejoice because we know what is to come. And so what, you may be asking us yourself. We're going to be singing joy to the world. And the song says, joy to the world, the Lord has come. No more let sin and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. So Christmas reminds us of the living hope that brings us to rejoice. I hope you hear me say it doesn't mean that we don't cry and that we don't lament and that we don't whatever. We don't brush things under the carpet. But I do want you to know if you are in lament right now, I want, you to be, I want you to remember the joy of your salvation. I want you to know and be reminded of the living hope that is in Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you're like, I don't know if I have that or not, don't leave today without us talking to you about it. Some of you have heard me open up with that statement and you maybe heard it and you're like, well, I'm not going to listen to the rest of this. That joy is not optional in the Christian life. Some of you may be responding with, Pastor, I'm not very joyful today. If you notice, I didn't define what joy is because I did that on purpose. I hope 1 Peter 1 gives you a definition of what that joy is. John Piper defined joy in this way. Joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in his word and in his works. I thought that was fantastic. Meaning that joy is a gift and the response to the gift of God. Joy comes when we are aware of God's grace and we sit there and we relish in the God's favor every day. We live in a world full of distractions, especially Christmas. We don't have time to do our devotions, but we do suddenly have time to watch a show or to keep scrolling. So often we are relishing in everything else but God's grace and his mercy towards us. And there are so many things that are stealing our attention from the very thing that we need. So this is the type of joy, if this is the type of joy that you want, it comes only through receiving the gift and responding to the gift. It only comes through relishing in the great mercy of God. What can you do to help refocus yourself to, to this living hope that brings you to joy? I think there's five ways. There's actually probably way more, but these are the ones I came up with. The first one is this, seek his face. Seek his face. I was, this is from our family devotions, actually. Psalm 27, verse 8, he says, You said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. 
If the source of joy is to dwell on the gift of God and to respond to those gifts, we need to be reminded of those gifts. It's like kids on Christmas when they get the present and then they get another present and they forgot about that present. When we talk more and when we take more time to watch the news or read the news or your hobbies or looking on social media than we do to seek the face of God, what do you think the outcome of that's going to be? I'm saying this because I'm preaching to myself, by the way. So I'm going to be what I'm going to say to you what I've said to myself already this week. Like if you're in despair and gloom, shake your head. Get back to who God is. Stop comparing your life with whoever you're seeing on Instagram. But when we seek the face of God, we are reminded of the grace and the mercy that he so lavishly poured on us. According to a Pew Research uh, Center, 69% of adults and 81% of teens in the U.S. use social media. That's a huge number, by the way. An adult, by the way, is defined as 18 and older. And for all of you seniors who are like, I'm not on social media, maybe you're not, but Facebook is full of grandparents. In fact, it's so full of grandparents that the young people aren't on Facebook anymore. <laughs> this puts a large amount of population at an increased risk of things like anxiousness, depression, mental illness, all over social media. Social media has a reinforced nature. It wants us to keep going back. But here's the problem. It's not reminding us of the hope, the living hope that we have in Christ. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying you need to make sure that you keep things in check. If you're finding that you're getting depressed and gloom and doom and all those things, I would encourage you, probably the first thing you need to do is get rid of social media. And I know I have a staff member who's like, don't you dare, but yeah, I am. <laughs> Seek his face. Second thing is this, pray. Own how little you are truly joyful. Psalm 51, verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation, he says, and uphold me with a willing spirit. I'm singing the song from the 80s in my head right now. Pray your worries to the one who will hear. Let him remind you over and over again of the source of your joy. He is so patient. And we can't read without noticing that there's a lot of demands on the disciples that Jesus does. Like, how in the world am I supposed to rejoice in the Lord always and then do it again? Well, Lord, restore in my heart, the joy of my salvation. There's so many things that we can do as we continue to make much of Christ's. Third thing is praise him. Get some good theologically rich music. Uh, uh, we have a, uh, Noah has a um, Spotify, that's it. Spotify, that other thing that I don't use. I use Apple Music. Um, but we have a Spotify with all the songs that we sing. Put those headphones on, go for a walk, 
Or go in your car, because then you can sing it out and not really anyone will hear. <laughs> the fourth thing is this. Live in obedience to God. This is so simple and so true. How can you expect the joy when you're not abiding in the one who gives you joy? How can you expect blessing when you're actively and habitually in disobedience? Obedience is the evidence of genuine faith. If you are habitually in disobedience, you won't have joy. The fifth thing is this. Be in a Christian community. There's a reason why Hebrews 10 verses 19 to 25 makes the gathering of the saints not optional. It's not optional. If you're a Christian, you are commanded by the God who saved you, who you call as Lord and Savior, to get to the gathering of the church. It's, when, it's in this time because we need each other to share our hurts and our pains who will help us carry our burdens, who will strengthen us to continue, who will encourage us to keep going, who will cheer us on, to remind us of who we belong to. Having friends will remind you of who you can trust, how you can trust God, who is great in mercy. And we need two types of friends, right? The one who kind of like, hey, you got this. And then the other one who's like smacks you across the head and says, get your head back in the game. I think some of us are really good at the caressing the back, but not the smacking. And some of us are really good at the smacking and not the caressing of the back. By God's grace, we can be both. But we need to be in a community together to remind each other of these things. So as we close, last couple weeks ago, I was, we were in our elders meeting. Uh, we, were in our, we were in an elders meeting. We have great men, by the way, and you should be thanking them more. They're great men who sacrifice a lot of their time. And I, and I, meant, I said to them, hey, it finally feels like I'm not on a rickety raft in the midst of a giant hurricane. <laughs> I said that to them. But that we're, like, we're in a strong ship that can weather the storm. And I, and I said, this doesn't mean that the storms won't come or whatever it was, but as I was dwelling upon that this week, I think I was completely and utterly wrong. It's not about the size of the ship that has changed. God has used the trials of my life to show me and remind me of the faith that I have in him. And thank God for that. I don't have a bigger ship. I just see I have a bigger God. That's what we have. I think more and more about what God has done and how he has been patient with me in tribulation. I've prayed and I am reminded of the joy that is anchored in the unchanging character of my God. My circumstances don't change. Romans 12, 12 says, Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. God's word calls us to rejoice or to be joyful in hope. We need to remind each other and ourselves of the gospel. We need to relish in it. We need to dwell upon it. We need to preach to it ourselves. We need to preach it to one another because Christmas reminds us of the living hope that brings us to rejoice. 
Let us continue to worship our God together. Lord.